Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, well, welcome in, everyone. It's Halloween 2019 here on campus. It's been really fun to watch everyone walking around in their costumes. And for Apex, we're sort of celebrating Halloween. Um, In that, we are celebrating the world of magic. I have magician and author Alex Stone here in the studio with me today. And he did his talk today based off of his book, Fooling Houdini. So welcome into the studio, Alex. Hi, happy Halloween. Thanks so much for being here. I love your book and I'm so excited to be here and talking about it. And I hope everybody reads it because I just think it's fabulous. Everyone should read it. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you have such a fascinating story. And um, I know that the book tells a little bit about this, but just to kind of get our audiences a little bit more intrigued with your world, I'd love to just ask you a little bit about your background. Um, I know that in your bio and to get right started that your your uh, introduction into magic came early and was a bit fraught. Can you tell us a bit about that first story? Well, my father bought me a magic kit when I was five years old. He was traveling through New York and he, he went to FAO Schwartz, the old toy store, and brought me back a magic kit. And I was instantly taken with it. My first live gig was at my own sixth birthday party. I was my own magician. Uh, but it did not go well. I was not really performance ready. I was heckled to tears and just brutally, just ripped to shreds. Uh, those kids were, were, te- were brutal. Um, but I didn't give it up. I kept with it. And largely thanks to my father's encouragement and well past the age at which it would be considered, you know, appropriate. And I, am uh, still doing magic to this day. Yeah. Um, but I actually got more into it as embarrassing as it sounds when I moved to New York and discovered as an adult, this crazy subculture of magicians. And, um, and that's what kind of got me into it later on. And what led me to ultimately write this book about this kooky world filled with these sort of brilliant eccentrics and, um, I also have a background in science. So we can talk about that. But it's, uh, I also b- began to look at and become intrigued with the many connections between magic and science, especially psychology, but also mathematics and physics and whatnot. And, uh, and merging those two in- in- instincts, uh, sorry, interests is actually what led me to, to write this. So when you, when you moved to New York, I mean, the idea of writing a book probably wasn't the first thing. No, no. Why did you move to New York? Tell me a little bit about the science background and how all yeah. that sort of links together. I moved to New York for a girl who dumped me like the week I got there. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I also, but also because I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. And so you always did want to be a writer. Mm, yeah. I wanted to be like a writer, a journalist. And so I kind of moved to New York for that as well. So, uh, and my first, I mean, my first job was actually teaching English. But then a little bit after that, I started getting jobs at magazines. And then eventually I landed at Discover, which was, is oh, yeah. a science magazine. Yeah. And I was a writer and editor there for, for many years. But your degrees are in science. So I have a, an English degree, um, which 
as my Spanish relatives were quick to point out, didn't you already speak English? <laughs> um, and then I went to graduate school a bit later at Columbia for physics. Uh -huh. And that's where I worked in an astrophysics lab studying the birth of the universe. Ah. We studied um, this thing called the cosmic microwave background. Okay. So that is, uh, it's like the heat signature from the Big Bang. It's like, imagine like a camera flash. You know how like, it's like the after image of that. So yeah. Really early on in the birth of the universe, nothing could escape, no light, nothing. And then about 300,000 years or so after the Big Bang, you get the first light that escapes. And it's everywhere, but no one actually discovered it until the 60s. These guys who were out, they weren't even trying to find it. Um, and it's in the microwave range. And then they found this light source that was coming from everywhere. And then it turns out, oh, you know, no big deal. It's just the Big Bang. So, <laughs> so uh, physicists research it to kind of understand why the universe looks like it does, why there's what's called structure, why there's galaxies here and nothing here. Um, and so I worked in this lab that, that basically investigates that. Uh, so you had a job, you were doing yeah. all this stuff. Yeah, and, and then, then I threw it all away for you... magic. <laughs> so this is a cautionary tale. It's a spooky tale. It's a scary story. It's a perfect Halloween tale. Yeah, I mean, so I, yeah, I kind of have a, a habit of letting my hobbies sort of take over and oh. torpedo my life. Um, <laughs> I dropped out of school for a while to join a band once and now and then during this period I I got really obsessed with magic and um in my defense <laughs> magic is actually a lot more innovative and sort of dynamic than I think a lot of people might assume it's really vibrant in terms of a community it's almost like an avant-garde art community in right. terms of the amount of innovation I, I guess initially I would have thought magic is kind of like the same eight tricks over and over again. But the truth is like every day people are coming up with new effects or new takes on old effects. And magicians have even started holding tournaments and contests to sort of test each other's skill and try to fool each other. Yeah. One of the questions I get a lot is like, can magicians, you know, be fooled? And the answer is they made a sport out of it. There's even a magic Olympics. Uh, every yeah. three years that where magicians get together and they hold and there are different categories and they literally try to fool each other. And this is something you know about firsthand. Right. So which yes. is another great story. Another sore spot. Yes. Um, <laughs> if you must know. Uh, so yeah. So in 2006, uh, right sort of not long after I'd kind of gotten involved in the, in the magic world in New York and stuff, I, I competed at the magic Olympics, which that year was in Stockholm, Sweden. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know what to expect at the time. I was sort of cocky and was like, oh, I'm totally going to rock this thing. And I went there and what I discovered was that it's not unlike the regular Olympics. People have been preparing for this one five-minute routine for years and years and years. I mean, literally people have been working on like one routine. It's like the Magic Olympics, The it's like figure skating. You do a routine in front of judges and then they give you like a one to 10 rankings right. and stuff like that. And then like there's different categories like card magic, mentalism, stage magic. Wow. And, uh, no, it, it's very intense. It's a whole week. Wow. And then there's exhibition events. It's it's a blast. Actually, I really recommend it. And the next one is in Quebec City in 2022. Oh, great. So, uh, I actually, I say go. Yeah. Like, just do it. it Sounds like family, fun. Your tickets now, they're on discount still. It's a blast. I mean, yeah. I've seriously... I will never forget the Magic Olympics, but um, good and the bad. The good being the event itself. The bad being my own performance. Uh, I was not prepared, not even remotely. And it, there's a rule at the Magic Olympics that says if you are within the first two minutes of your act deemed to be beneath the minimum skill level that every com uh, competitor should have, 
the judges will illuminate a red light of shame and you have to get off stage right away. (laughs) So that happened that year that happened to one performer and that was me. Oh, I'm Uh, sorry. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty rough at the time. I have to say I can laugh about it now, but uh, I'm sure it felt terrible. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, and it felt terrible, but, and, and it, and I, I, people walked up to me afterwards. One guy came up to me afterwards and he, he said without even irony, he, he, without a trace of irony, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, don't worry. In 20 years, you'll laugh at this. Oh, my <laughs> I, gosh. It, it was like I'd been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, like basically, my people gosh. Were like, people were like, yeah. And, and, but um, but it, I mean, it was pretty harsh. But it was also, um, you know, made me appreciate just how much effort and skill magicians uh, put into their acts and, um, and how magicians really are like coming up with new ways to fool each other. Like there's stories, there's all these great stories in the magic Olympics. Like there's this one story about this magician by the name of Leonard green, who is Swedish. He was a doctor who'd like fiddle around with cards. I guess, I don't know if it was a very good doctor, but, <laughs> but anyway, he's not known for that. Um, but he entered the magic Olympics one year in the card category and he was actually disqualified or, or got like zero points because the judges said his, his tricks were impossible to do with like a regular deck. So they accused him of using stooges in the audience, which is illegal and like tr- using a trick deck. And so he didn't win. But it turns out that he had just invented all these crazy new sleight of hand techniques that no one had ever known before. And he just fooled them. He fooled them too bad. He fooled yeah. them so bad that they were like he cheated. So anyway, long story short is like he comes back three years later, having more or less established himself a little bit more. And I guess he gives him the deck to inspect and is now proving himself to be above board and he wins gold. And now he's this legend um, who's put out like he's just he, he's known as I think he did a TED talk, actually. He's oh. really look, look him up, Leonard Green. I mean, he's really a genius. Cool. So I don't know. Things like that to, were really inspiring to me because I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of innovation. There's all these new ideas. And, you know, and and so that got me even more involved. And after getting my ass kicked. <laughs> Sorry, can I say ask? Uh, he, uh, I just, I decided I'm going to try to really learn magic, get good at it, and study not just the techniques and the craft, but also the psychology and the science and the history behind it, the philosophy of it, and what it all means. Um, kind of from make a science, like the science and the art. Yeah. And at what point did the book come into play? Yeah. The book idea in yeah. that trajectory. So after, after the, after I actually competed, because I wrote an article about it, uh, the Olympics for Harper's and. That was actually – I got in a lot of trouble for that because I exposed some secrets in the article. And I remember not long after it came out, I got a call, a letter by – it was like a certified ma- – I think it's the only piece of certified mail I've ever gotten. Yeah. But it was from the Ethics Committee of the Society of American Magicians telling me that I was in violation of like Article 6, Section B of the Code of Ethics because I would exposed secrets. And I long story short, there was going to be a trial. Wow. Um, I had it all planned out. I was going to bring like – I was going to try to get like a lawyer. And yeah, clown. you kind of fought back. Yeah, I did. I did. And in the end, like we reached some agreement where I was like excommunicated from my local society. But I think oh. I still managed to maintain like membership in my national society. So the the, the secrecy thing is very serious. I mean like yeah. uh, for those who've seen Arrested Development, the, the character Job is is really cuttingly close to, to reality. It's uh. not – it's 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 a lot truer than it isn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you wrote for Harper's, yeah. and then did that sort of evolve into the book? Yeah, th- sort of. Yeah, I think um, I I was still, I was still at Discover, and someone was like, "Hey, you know, this is really interesting stuff. You should write a book about it." Um, the article didn't come out until like I don't know. I wrote it, and then they they sat on it for a while. It didn't come out until a couple years after I wrote it, but or after the Olympics. But someone was like, "This is really interesting stuff. You should write a book about it." And then I was like, "Oh, it never occurred to me." Um, and then. 
I talked to someone and they were like, yeah. And then I started to, that's kind of, it, it kind of grew organically over time. And then the research that you did from there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you did, but you did clown school, I yoga. I did a lot of you research. Did... I went to Vegas like 10 times. Yeah. yeah. I went to Beijing for the 2009 Magic Olympics. I went to a magic school. Uh, there's this, I mean, like Hogwarts for grownups, basically. It was like this uh, whole, um, it's actually, it was actually in, also in Vegas. Um, this, the, um, it, it, it's, I mean, literally, it's magic school. Like you, yeah. there are, and there are lots of schools. Uh, yeah. And that's, there are actually more in other countries in the States. Oh. Um, but uh, this one was um, really cool and get like a certificate and stuff like that. And, uh, and I went to tons of conferences all over the world. There's so many lecture, to, like lecture events and, and uh, workshops and just, it's, it's a very, I mean, you could, you, I went very far down the rabbit hole. But then I also, in addition to that, did a lot of research into the science of it and talked to psychologists and read a lot of books on psychology and neuroscience. And I investigated the math math of shuffling with a Professor Columbia. Yeah. Uh, I met the the world's one of the world's greatest card sharks who's actually legally blind. Yes. Which led me to investigate the science of touch and tactile sensitivity and how one's how our senses adapt when one is lost and yeah, so it was like a really uh, kind of fun, sweeping adventure. It's amazing. And I tell you, the book is just so enjoyable. It really is that blend, as I was telling you earlier, of just this wonderful conversational style, humor, but yet so much hardcore history and science. And it's just this great blend that just had me just completely engrossed the whole time. The book is called Fooling Houdini, and the author is Alex Stone, who's here in the studio with me. Well, it's time for a song. And of course, you know, I have some magic-based songs, but I have some magic-based songs, and then I have a non-magic magic based song to play for you that also ties into Alex's life and past. But first, uh, we're going to play, of course, one of the one of the favorites, and that is Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. You're listening to KSU Youth under 91.1.
Okay, welcome back, everyone. This is the Apex Hour, and I am joined in the studio with magician and author Alex Stone. The song that you just heard was, of course, Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. Welcome back in, Alex. Hi. So we've been talking about your book, which is called Fooling Houdini. I highly recommend it. And I want to ask you, people probably ask you this all the time, but there's a quote that in, in your book that I'd love to read that talks about the definition of magic. I mean, right. what is it really, you know? And that that from your book is is magic at its core is about toying with the limits of perception. And as any neuroscientist will tell you, one can learn a lot about the brain by studying those bizarre moments wherein it succumbs to illusion. Magic lives in these moments. At its best, magic is a kind of psychological cage match. <laughs> I love that. And I'd love for you to just tell me, maybe riff on that a bit about like, yeah. what is magic? What what really is magic? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I, I think that, or at least what I was trying to get at there is that magic works because it exploits these little gaps in our perception that govern how we see the world all the time. So it's, you know, it's a kind of deception for entertainment, but it really exploits 
fundamental psychological mechanisms like uh, things like scientists have a name for these things, inattentional blindness, for instance, the fact that even when you're looking right at something, you might not see it if you're distracted, you know, yeah. and there are experiments like the famous gorilla experiment, right? Uh, just Google that, and you'll know what I'm talking about. And the pedestrian experiment where, you know, people don't notice w when two people switch. Um, and there's this whole literature in psychology on cognitive illusions and, and biases. And these experiments are Many of them are magic tricks done in a lab. And one of the things that you mentioned when you talk in the book about this is about, um, you know, how we're we're not really that great at our our focus or and, and yeah. not great about multitasking. I was curious what um, because I don't know that this is something that you got to too much. What if somebody wanted to improve their yeah. perceptiveness? Because I've been watching you interact with people all day, and I noticed that you look at everything. You see it. I feel like you see everything. I've been watching you <laughs> observe everyone and watch everything and notice everything in the room. So that's something I think you probably worked on because you develop. Yeah. If somebody wanted to develop yeah. that, what could they do? So yeah, there there are practiced ways of seeing. You know, anytime you get better at something, you 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 develop senses that you didn't already have, and you can improve your powers of observation. And there are experiments that people have done, even on showing showing that you can like improve at sort of attending to more than one thing at a time. I often think about it like if you're watching a basketball game, it's really easy to pay attention to the person with the ball. Try paying attention to the other people, you know, mm. at the same time. Or um, I mentioned this in my books because I'm more of a classical music nerd. Like um, I like a lot of listen to a lot of Bach, and you know, in Bach you have counterpoint, and you have all these different voices, and sometimes it's your ear is you want to listen to the sort of main voice, mm -hmm, the melody, the yeah. melody. Mm -hmm. But if you try to like listen to the bass, for instance, and you try to focus on that because it's harder to focus, there's a way in which you kind of hear everything simultaneously. Yeah. But the truth is, it's really hard to get very good at these things because it's so in our blueprint. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why even when you know how a magic trick is done, it can kind of still fool you a lot of times. Yeah. Even if it doesn't, even if you intellectually know how it done, how it's done, or even if you understand the principles of magic, you can still be fooled. And yeah. it's because it's, it, it really does take advantage of these fundamental, these things that have evolved over millions of years and they're hardwired into our, our neural circuitry, you know, mm. how we're like, we're very good at, we're very good at focusing on one thing. That's sort of one of our great achievements as a species is that we can focus on one task. But in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to suppress your awareness of other things. Right. And that's what makes us bad at multitasking and makes us easy in some cases to fool, but it's ultimately an asset. And I think that's one thing that's important to stress is a lot of the things that magicians exploit are kind of the flip side of these powerful human um, attributes. Right. And I know that you talk a lot about, uh, you know, the our inability to multitasking and, and that that's why we shouldn't text or talk on yeah, the phone right. in the car. Um, yeah. So that's I think that's a that, that's a really fascinating thing. Um, do you think that we should not multitask? Are you do you actively practice not multitasking in all areas of your life? I'm a total hypocrite at this. I mean, I'm a ba I'm a bad multitasker, but I'm also just a nervous, fidgety person. So uh -huh. I do it all the time, and I do it dreadfully. Mm. Like I literally, I catch my but every but every time I screw something up, I notice like almost every time I screw something up, it's because I'm trying to do too much at once. Yeah. So yes, I actively like I actively like I have a thing on my computer that blocks the internet for four hours at a time so I can write. You oh know? wow. Yeah, and I'll I'll. 
I, I have to because yeah. I'm very easily distracted uh. um, because I, yeah, because I can't otherwise. And yeah. I try meditating when I can and I try doing things that, but I'm very aware of how bad I am at it. Uh. Like whenever I try to do more than one thing at once, it usually, or cooking, like I'll be cooking and I'll be trying hard conversation and I'll, you know, I'll burn myself or I'll cut myself or I'll spill everything over the place. Yeah. So, um, but in this day and age, I think we're, it's such a, we're so information saturated, you know, it's like, we're, and everything is always at our fingertips. It's so easy to, um, to, 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 to be doing too much at once. And I think, but we're just not built for it. You know, our, our brains are designed for pedestrian speeds, mm. right? That's, we evolved at in a, a different world than we live in now, you know? Right. And, um, and so I think that's part of why, you know, we're susceptible in some ways. Another thing that that magic seems to be, or at least seems to be linked to, is um, cheating oh, or yeah. the other side of it. You know, yeah. the the other side of stuff. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how your opinions about how that, what that really means. You know, what yeah. is magic in that in that more sort of insidious side of things? I mean, there's a long history of magicians. Um, cross-pollinating with con artists and card cheats and gamblers and hustlers because many of the same techniques are used. You know, the same thing that can be used to do a card trick can be used to cheat at a poker game. The same thing that might be used in the shell game to palm out the pee and scam people on the streets could be used in a, at a magic show. Um, and more generally, like hustlers and cheaters often intermingled with these people. And some of the great magicians learned and cut their teeth in these in this world. Um, one of the people that I talk about in my book is this character, uh, Richard Turner, who is one of the great, one of the greatest card cheats in the world. Uh, and he's a, he's not a criminal. He's a very honest guy. Um, but he's had offers from the mob and from people all over the place. He's been offered millions of dollars. They offered to kill his wife for him. I mean, he's got these crazy stories. Whoa. But the incredible thing about Richard is he's blind. Oh he my went gosh. blind as a child and he does everything by touch. And I've seen him many times and I've gotten to know him and, um, he is truly one of the most incredible technicians when it comes to cards and false shuffles and second and third deals and cuts and that I've ever seen. Yeah. And uh, it's truly in amazing and inspirational. There's a really good movie about him actually called Delt. Oh, cool. That I recommend. Yeah, um, Delt. I want to check that out. That yeah. sounds really amazing. Uh, but he, you know, so talking to him got me thinking a lot about, about A, the, you know, the, the underworld of magic. And I, I also spent like a lot of time watching the three card Monty guys on the streets of New York who were, you see it less and less each year. But when I was do, doing my research, um, they were still around on Canal Street. And I mean, I saw people lose $500,000 at a time. Oh my these gosh. Guys, all cash, you know, hundred bucks a pop. And it got me thinking about just how, well, how good these guys were at their job. Like yeah. that's a hard thing to do to yeah. convince someone to pay, to play a scam. And the sort of thing I, I kind of, came up with or the, what I realized is it's not that they convince the person that it's not a scam. It's more that they convince them that it is a scam, but that they can write themselves into the con that they yeah. can cheat the cheater. Right. Uh, but anyway, back to Richard, like Richard is this amazing guy. And, and that got me thinking about, cause he does everything by his sense of touch. And um, he's so good that he was hired by the U S playing card company to be their touch analyst. And they would send him decks of cards like whenever they would do like a new deck of cards and he would feel them and he could tell if they were just off by like a millimeter, like a, by not even a millimeter or a fraction of a millimeter. He could tell, yeah. you can tell he can, you can put a stack of cards in his hands and he can tell you how many are there. I've seen him do it. It's insane. And that got me thinking a lot about, you know, we've often heard that when you lose one sense, the others rally 
to fill the gap. And he's an example of this. And it turns out there's a literature on this, on how blind people, especially the earlier they go blind, the, the more sensitive their touch is, their hearing perfect pitch is more common among blind right, people. Right, right. Um, and there's a neuroscience underlying this, uh, which is a fairly recent discovery um, called cross-modal plasticity, which is a fancy word for when one, this is the crazy thing, actually, they've they found that when like blind people use their sense of touch, um, the part of the, the part, the visual cortex, the part of the brain that normally processes Sees, sight yeah. is active in them. Oh, wow. And, and this is something that was thought to be impossible a generation ago, because it was thought that once that sense died or was no longer there, that part of the brain just sort of Stop. Stop working. Yeah. But actually what's going on here in, in a sense is that the visual cortex is kind of being recruited by the the tactile tactile uh, yeah. function. And it's in a way, I mean, it's quite literally like they're seeing with their fingers. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And so it's just this beautiful example of how, how the brain, how miraculous and magical the brain is. Oh, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Well, you, you mentioned music, and I think that I read that there's some music in your background. You were a pianist, I think. That's right. I uh, studied piano starting when I was eight years old, and I took like classical piano lessons for basically like 10 years until I graduated high school. And then um, I also played in a band for a while. And, That's awesome. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I was, I loved music. I still do. I, I don't play that much anymore. I wish I did. Uh, but yeah. Well, you just mentioned earlier that you were listening to some some Bach to sort of yeah. develop uh, perception, yes. you know, and listening to the difference between the melody and the harmony and all that. Yeah. And so, of course, it's time for oh, another good. music yes. break. Oh, awesome. And so um, I happen to know that you in your book, you mentioned you particularly like the John Williams recordings of the huge Bach John lute Williams, suite. Huge John Williams guy. It's Big, amazing. Yeah, that's my jam. So we're going to listen to uh, one of the movements of Lute Suite number three in G minor um, by Bach. And this is performed by John Williams. Uh, this is the Apex Hour. You're listening to KSU Youth under 91.1. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is the Apex Hour. You're listening to KSU Youth under 91.1. I'm Lynn Vartan, and I'm here with Alex Stone. Welcome back, Hi. Alex. Alex is the author of Fooling Houdini, um, just a great book about magic, about mentalists, about the cognitive powers of the mind. Um, and yeah, you can check it out. Uh, do you have a website also that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, it's under construction. Oh, but, okay. Uh, it's foolinghoudini.com. But also, I'm on, I have like a, an author page on Facebook, Alex Great. Stone. I'm also on Instagram. I think it's, I think it's, I'm Alex Stone. Great. You okay. Can find me. Cool. Yeah. Well, check out the book. It's really fun. Um, I'd love to continue our conversation about magic by talking about, um, I, I think that as a lay person, I didn't really understand that there were so many different yeah. kinds of magic. <laughs> yeah. And reading your book, you start talking about some of these different stage magic, close-up magic, card magic, this, I don't know. Can you share with us a little bit those yeah. worlds? Yeah, there's a ton of different types. I mean, so the, okay, so the basic breakdown usually falls into two big camps. One is the stage magic, which is the David Copperfield stuff, like the, you know, the sawing a person in half and, you know, the big box illusions. Close-up magicians kind of derisively call them box pushers or furniture movers. <laughs> um, and then there's close-up magic, which is the stuff that's done usually at close range, cards, coins, string, rope, things like that. Uh, but even within that, there's a lot of a overlap, but also breakdowns. You know, there's um, manipulation, which is called like, uh, which is like the magic where, you know, you're doing a lot of like producing dubs and cards and technical sort of stuff that's like flourishes almost. It's almost oh. like juggling on stage. And that's called manipulation. Yeah, it's usually called manipulation. Um, and it's, it's like the ones where you'll see someone like producing card after card after card after card. And it's extremely technical. It's almost like this sort of like gymnastics of magic. Oh. And then in close up magic, there's, you know, magicians who specialize in like gambling style tricks. Then there's people who specialize in levitations. Then there's, um, you know, there are people who just do coin magic. Like there are the great coin magicians who, who innovate, figure out new places to hide coins and yeah. like all that. Um, then there's mentalism, which can be done both on stage and up close. But mentalism is a branch of magic that involves things like mind reading and spoon bending and uh, psychic phenomena. So spoon bending is yeah. included in mentalist. Yes. And it, that's the, I always find it's, that a little unusual. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. Like, why is it there? It's because it's like a mind over matter thing. Mm. And I think the key, well, really, I think the key distinction is that a lot of mentalism doesn't look like magic, or at least it's not presented as magic. Like, it's like, oh, I can figure out information about you, or I can... I know what word you're thinking of, or I, I know what you're, I, I can, in, you know, commune with your dead relatives or thing like that. And a lot of times it's passed off. It's passed off in a different context than magic. Right. Like spoon bending has been, a lot of people have bent spoons and said, this is real and gotten famous and rich off of it in the same way that they've said that they can find oil or water or, you know, uh, and, but it's, it's all part of the same thing. So it, the reason why it's called mentalism is because it's like, Oh, they're bending it with their mind. But it, it is just magic. I mean, it really, it's a magic trick. Right. You can learn how to do it at, in magic books at a magic store. But the literature is in the mentalism realm. And it's the people who do it tend to be the same ones who might say, like, here, write down, an, you know, something on a piece of paper and I'll figure out what the word is. Or, you know, let me do some or a personality reading. And these are the same techniques that are often used in, like, psychics and horoscopes and things like that. And sometimes people pass it off as, as real. And the mentalism side of things seems to flirt 
with the yes. the line of ethics uh, quite a bit first, more with it and oftentimes definitely like i would say violates it yeah um and there's a long history of this actually like houdini for instance before he was famous he was a he actually was a fake medium mm. he would go to towns and like figure out who'd recently died and do these readings you know wow. and, like, and claim to talk to dead relatives that was a huge business back then and then he felt really bad about it later and then he spent a large portion of his life debunking spiritualists and spirit mediums, which during that period were huge, mm. huge, huge, huge. Like people would go town to town doing these spirit shows um, because he was really angry about it. And um, and also because he, after his mother died, he was like, he wanted to believe that there was an afterlife, but then when he didn't see proof of it, but he still held out hope because he gave his wife a secret word. And after he died, he said, have a seance every year on Halloween. Oh. And uh, I'm going to try to communicate to you. And if you hear this word, and now the Houdini seance every, every Halloween is like a thing among magicians. Oh, wow. But there are people who, who use it to tr trick people, yeah. uh, magicians, or they couch it sometimes in like some pseudoscience of like uh, suggestion or psychology. Right. And, and, and yes, there is obviously psychology involved, but oftentimes they'll couch it in like a pseudoscientific language when what it really is, is, is magic, is basic. It's not that different from a card trick. It just looks different. It's sort of, um, you know, it's undressed as lamb, if you will. And, yeah. uh, and, 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 but then there's this whole tradition of magicians being skeptics and deep, like the James Randi, for instance, he's this yeah. magician who would, you know, he had a challenge that no one could demonstrate psychic phenomenon. He'd offered a million dollars to anyone who could under controlled conditions. And, um, so there's this interesting dual tradition of magicians kind of exploiting people and using their tricks for evil. And then magicians also using their knowledge of how these tricks can be used to protect people and to debunk frauds. Yeah. That, that aspect of it is really fascinating. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. There's even a, a psychic investigation committee as part of the society, uh, society of American magicians oh, cool. that like investigates psychic phenomenon. I love it. One other thing I wanted to ask you about was about the future of magic. Mm. You know, all of your experience uh, and research and, and the characters that you know and the, the generations that all around the world that you've uh, been exposed to in magic. What Do you have any comments or any thoughts about the future of magic? Yeah, that's a good question because I think about, well, the big thing, if you ask magicians, like the big thing is the internet, right? Mm -hmm. Because... Magicians, every magician now has like a story about they do a show and then some D-bag in the show holds up their phone and is like, here's how you do it, you know? Uh, <laughs> I can't believe people do that. So, yeah. So, you know, you can find out how a lot is done on the internet. And so there were a lot of magicians who were worried about, you know, is the internet going to destroy magic? But I would argue that it's actually been really good for magic. It certainly has... There, I mean, there are disadvantages in, in, in like that in that case, but uh, like in the case of you know people exposing tricks during a show. But I think it's also allowed for ideas to be transmitted and traded a lot more, and I think that has driven innovation. Uh. And it's maybe forced magicians to get a little more creative. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to learn magic now than it's ever been before. It used to be that you had to. I mean, there were books. Obviously, there's been. I think there's more books about magic than other like any other form of theater. Um, but it used to be a much more of an oral tradition. You had to go to your and the way I learned was through books and then also just like going to my magic store and hanging out with the old guys at the pizzeria in New York that like <laughs> and learning awesome. off. Yeah. Like literally like learning at the feet of these old mentors. Yeah. Um, now I think, you know, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of videos online where you can learn. Um, so I think that's actually kind of a good thing because I think I, you know, it's nice that it's easier and more accessible. I don't think exposure has ever really been a threat to magic. Mm -hmm. It still exists. Um, it's still popular. There's still movies about it. 
Um, it's never going to be the kind of dominant form of entertainment that it was in the Victorian era. Right. Like it's just not because there's movies and music and Instagram. Uh, but I do think that the fact that you're, st- you can still hold someone's fascination with a card trick or a coin trick now in an age of CGI and these incredibly, you know, high tech everything tells me that it's taps into something very elemental about us that I think is timeless. Oh, I love that. Well said. Well, we have one more song that I wanted to get to. And uh, this is an album that I just found. Um, I don't know when it was made, but it's an album by Annie Lennox called Nostalgia, where she, uh, it's it's a bunch of covers. And this cover is the song, I Put a Spell on You, keeping with my magic theme, which is a Nina Simone song. But um, check out Annie Lennox's version of it and see what you think. Uh, this is KSUU Thunder 91.1. I put a spell on you Because you're mine You better stop the things you do I tell you I ain't lying
Welcome back, everyone, to the Apex Hour. We're just uh, having a good time here in the studio. That song was such a cool version of the Nina Simone, I Put a Spell on You. And that version you heard was by Annie Lennox, and I'm really into it. Um, the songs you heard today were Abracadabra by Steve Miller Band, uh, one of the movements from Lute Suite Number no. 3 in G Minor by Bach, performed by John Williams, and then I Put a Spell on You, the Annie Lennox version. All right, we have just a couple of minutes left, and I'm going to ask Alex. Alex Stone, author and magician, author of Fooling Houdini, a book that everybody should definitely check out. I loved it. But Alex, I'm going to ask you one of the questions that I ask guests all the time. And um, the, the question is, what's turning you on this week? And it could be anything. It could be a, a, a movie. It could be a TV show. It could be food. It could be a book. It could be a song. It could be anything. But just something for us to get to know you a bit better. So Alex Stone, what's turning you on this week? So this has nothing to do with magic, but uh, I actually just watched uh, comedian Gary Goleman's uh, HBO special, The Great Depression. Oh. And it's a comedy. Gary Goleman's this brilliant comedian, and I've always been a big fan of his, uh, but I didn't really know his whole history with mental illness and depression, and he did this special about it oh. on HBO, and it it is this just, it's very funny, uh, but it's also just brilliant and moving and honest and brave and candid in the way um, it deals with depression and mental illness, he, he, he had a very, very, he struggled very, very uh, much, like terribly with, with depression and anxiety and was unable to work for many years. Wow. And he's turned it into this very, this incredibly meaningful, heartbreaking, uh, but also hilarious um, show. And I just encourage anyone who has any interest in comedy or uh, um, the human condition to watch it because he just, he has an angle on it that's really interesting, and I don't think there's a lot of people who've talked about it in this way, and especially not on stage in, you know, as a stand-up comedian. Yeah. It's hard to take something like that that's tragic and make it funny and find meaning and beauty in it, and he really does that. So oh, cool. I, um, I'm going to so check it out. I actually watched it uh, twice. And, and what was the title? It's one called more time? The Great Depression. Okay. In like, you know, depression. Yeah. That's what he calls it. And the comedian it. is Gary Goleman. So G U L M A N. All right. Um, and his comedy in general is, is fantastic. Like his, all his comedy is great. I highly recommend it. But this special, I think it was produced by Judd Apatow. And it, like this special oh, in yeah. particular is just, is something special. And I think it really elevates comedy to a kind of a level of sort of, uh, I don't know, philosophical yeah. interest. And it's, it's, it's beautiful and funny and sad and, and, and really great. Ah, thank you so much for sharing it. I'm excited to check it out. Well, that pretty much takes us to the end of our time today. Um, you've been listening to Alex Stone. The book is called Fooling Houdini. Alex, thank you so much for sharing uh, your magic and your stories and just all of your knowledge with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Yay. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.